want to ask us to turn to the book of Nehemiah, if you have a Bible with you. I'm going to read a little bit of two chapters. Starting in chapter 1, the first four verses, and then in chapter 2, the first five verses. The book of Nehemiah. And I've called my message today, Nehemiah's Number. You'll find out why as we go on. So, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before God, the God of heaven. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I asked the king. I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Amen. Today we're going to look at the subject of building something for God. And Nehemiah built something. He built something that revived the people of God and lasted for generations to come. In fact, what he built was so incredible, it lasted for centuries. Now, you will probably know the story of Israel's history. And at this point, the temple and the city of Jerusalem have all been destroyed and are in ruins. But when Nehemiah finishes and accomplishes the building work, it lasts so long that five centuries later, when Jesus is around, he goes to the same temple. Now, they'd added a bit around the outside and fancied it up with a few shop units and so on. But essentially, it was the same temple. And that's how long it lasted. It paved the way for Christ to come. Let me ask you right at the beginning of this message, do you want to pave the way for Christ to come in your life and in the lives of others? Amen. I trust you do. That's good. Well, Nehemiah built three things. He built a, he built a temple, he built a city, and he built a wall. And through that, he restored the spiritual heart of the nation. And the wall came first, and there's good reason for that. We'll look at that in just a moment. But today, this is a message about change. And you've heard some of that coming through already in the sense of the worship and in the sense of the prophetic. Anyone who wills to be like Nehemiah will be willing change into place. And we're talking about change in three ways. Change in our nature change in our neighborhood, and change in our nation. Can you remember those three things? In our nature, in our neighborhood, 
and in our nation, why don't you say them to the person next to you? I think you agree. If we could change all of those things, we could change everything. So those are the three ends, if you like, of change. So Nehemiah brings change. To be like Nehemiah brings change in our nature, in our neighborhood, and in our nation. Now, when Nehemiah does this, the change comes about pretty much simultaneously. And we want to look at, for a few minutes this morning, how he manages to do this. How does he build this wall, and what lessons can we learn from, for ourselves today? Well, the first thing is this, he prioritized. He prioritized. In chapter 2, verse 17 to 18, it says, You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. And its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Now, I need to say something here, just as a kind of a, an aside comment. There are some walls that are not supposed to be built in life. There are walls that people build between themselves and other people. Walls of racial tension, gender walls, walls of prejudice, Walls of class, walls of superiority, walls of falling out with other people. Now, we're not supposed to build those walls, and people even build walls between themselves and God. That's the kind of wall we built. But there is one wall we can build, and that wall is not a wall of our design or of our construction. It's a wall that God builds. It's an essential wall It's a necessary wall. Some preachers call it the necessary line. The necessary line. It's a wall that God would have us all build. And it's a wall that people and the enemy have tried to break down. Isn't it remarkable? The one wall we should build, people and the enemy have tried to build down. And all the walls we shouldn't build... I thought the Lord was speaking to me then. I just heard this voice in my head say, Pastor Clive, the Lord of... Am I I going on and off? I'm all right. Okay. There's a wall that God wants built and the enemy and people have tried their best to tear that wall down. It's a spiritual wall. Now, the wall we're looking at here today is a physical wall made out of blocks and stones. But it acts as 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 a reminder to us Uh, and a picture of what this spiritual wall is all about. Now, the spiritual wall that God wants to build in this world is a wall that brings about distinction and distinctiveness. It shows how God is different. It shows how God and his ways are different and they're to be learned by people. It provides definition and distinction. Things are different inside the wall of God than they are outside the wall of God. And it also provides protection from the enemy. Inside of that wall, any person who's there is protected by the power of God. And you understand the Bible talks about this wall in a number of ways. In the book of Job, The enemy accuses Job and he says to God, I can't touch him because you put a hedge or a wall or a fence of protection around him. 
There is a spiritual wall that God can build around people, around the life of each person, that brings incredible protection from the enemy. And in Isaiah, it talks about the future Jerusalem being restored. And it says this in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 5, then the cloud of then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. And although Jerusalem is supposed to have a physical wall to represent protection and the protection they needed from the enemy, the physical enemy in those days, God is also going to put around Jerusalem a wall of fire that will be a protection, a spiritual wall that will protect them and the blessings of God in their lives as they live for him and for his glory. Now, let me see if I can illustrate this for you a little bit more. The Garden of Eden was different to the rest of the world when God created it. There was something different about being in Eden than there was about being in the rest of the planet. Now, it was all good. You understand that? God made all of it good and wonderful at the outset. And yet, within that whole planet, he chose a small area. We don't know how big, but he called it the Garden of Eden or the Garden of Pleasure. And in that garden, he put the first couple. Now, this is not just some nice story to fill children's books with. There is power and depth and understanding in understanding what is going on here in Genesis. Now, on a certain day, the enemy comes and tempts Eve and says to her, why don't you take this fruit? Now, you understand that Eden was somehow separated off from the rest of the planet. And the idea was, was that Adam and Eve would grow together in God. They would be fruitful and multiply. And as they did that, they would have more children inside Eden. And the effect of what Adam was doing in Eden, what God called tending the garden and living for him and living by his word and living in a great relationship with Eve and having a wonderful family life together, as that all happened inside Eden, the walls of Eden would start expanding outwards. And as more people were born, the walls would get bigger. And the mission God gave them was to turn the whole of the rest of the planet into Eden. So we keep everything inside the wall. We just make the wall go out further and further until in the end, everything in the planet is inside the wall. Can I say to you, brothers and sisters, that's still the mission today. Now, something happened when Eve took that fruit. She ate it. It looked good, it smelt good, it tasted good, and it had a good appeal to her. Funny how things that look good, smell good, taste good, and feel good can be so bad for us, isn't it? When they were growing up, our children said to us, Mummy, why is it that all the food that we like is all bad for you, and all the food we don't like is good for you? I think they were comparing ice cream with Brussels sprouts at the time. But there is that kind of issue in life, isn't there? So Eve takes the fruit. Now, Adam is out tending the garden. So he comes back and she offers the fruit to him. Now, think about that for a moment. Think about what's going on there. It's a deep and powerful moment because at that moment, Eve 
may have looked to Adam pretty much like she'd looked when he left her that morning. She hadn't grown a big pimple on the end of her nose or a big spot on her forehead or anything like that. Her hair hadn't suddenly developed split ends. She was just as good-looking then to him as she was that morning when he'd left to go tend the garden. However, something had changed. She was in a different place to him in that moment. In her heart and in her spirit, she was outside of the wall. Now, what would have happened if Adam had said, I don't think I'll do that, dear. I know God's put us here together, but I don't like the sound of that. He told us not to eat the fruit, so I won't. Now, come on, you budding theologians, or those you would like to be a rabbi. This could keep Bible scholars going for centuries. What would have happened if Adam would have said no to taking the apple after Eve would have said yes? We would have been in all kinds of, well, we're in all kinds of difficulties now because they both acted. I'll do this, have I? Okay. Yeah, it's not working, sorry. Can you turn me off here? There we go. What would have happened to them in that situation? Could Eve have stayed in the garden? She couldn't. By behaving in an outside-of-the-wall way, she placed herself outside of the wall, spiritually speaking, immediately. Now, here's a curious thing. It's a little bit of a throwaway, if you like. But when Eve was interacting with Adam in that moment, she must have been thinking to herself, I'm no different to him. He looks no different to me. I'm fine. I've tried this apple or this fruit, whatever it was. It looks fine. It tastes fine. It's all right. Nothing terrible's happened to me. I'm, I'm as good now as I was then. You see, that's the root of deception. When we get ourselves into trouble in life, we tell ourselves, I'm, I'm all right. I'm, I'm as good as I was five minutes ago. I don't think I've changed very much. I feel more or less the same. But something has happened in that moment. You know, if you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've given your heart and life to him, if you walk in his ways, you can stand in the bus queue and you can start sharing your faith with somebody else there. And they can say, well, what's different about you than me? I'm the same as you. I'm as good as you. And we're not here to compare ourselves with other people like that. But you understand that's the nature of deception. There was something very different between Adam and Eve at that moment. Something would have created a theological problem for them had Adam said no. I do believe God would have had to find a way to save Eve. But then we got a problem because 50% of the reproductive ministry of that couple would have been placed outside of the wall. Actually, perhaps it's more than 50% because ladies do seem to have to go through a little bit more than the men in this particular thing, saying that his daughter-in-law has been through that this week. Something, yes... <laughs> They're saying, yeah, over there. You've probably seen the news. We've had a new grandson this week called Nathan Graham. He's happy about the middle name. Apparently, it means a foundation of grit. There's the name Graham. I didn't know that before. But here's a man of grit and foundation over here, and this is the name they want to give to their little boy. It's also in memory of Billy Graham, in honor of Billy Graham. To praise the Lord. They weren't thinking of Reinhard Bonnke at the time. <laughs> a great man of God who I had the privilege to meet this year. But maybe Nathan Bonnke is not quite as good as Nathan Graham. So there we go. 
We've had a bonky in the family. Could you imagine that? Oh, possibilities are endless. Now, you'll notice something here that when Adam does take the fruit, they both have to leave the garden. And it says in Genesis 3 that... Uh, They says in Genesis 3 that after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Can you see the wall again? The spiritual wall of fire was there. They now had to live on the outside of Eden. They had to live on the other side of that wall. God placed them on the other side of that necessary line and then gave his whole heart and attention to redeeming mankind, to bring them back inside the wall of his love, of his ways, and his protection. So, we need that wall in the world today. We need the wall of God's fire that brings in his presence into our ways and into our lives and keeps out the work of the enemy. We need that wall. And when Nehemiah finished building that wall in record time, things changed immediately. When we build the same spiritual wall in our lives and we also reach out to others and see them become part of that spiritual wall, things change immediately in our nature, in our neighborhood, and in our nation. Now, for the people of God, as soon as Nehemiah got that wall up, you'll read later in the story, if you've read it before, you want to go and read it again. The first thing they did was they were able to read the law. They were able to get God's word into their lives in a whole new way they couldn't do before. They were able to confess sin and get right with God and have a different kind of relationship. They started putting their finances in order. They started putting their families in order. They started putting their relationships with one another in order. They started rebuilding a city and the temple. Everything changed once that wall went up. That's the value and that's the importance and that's the blessing of having a wall rebuilt in our lives. So Nehemiah prioritized. He put the building of the wall first because he knew that once that wall was established, inside of it, they could reestablish the things of God in them as a people and in them as individuals. The second thing Nehemiah did was prayed. Now, actually, he did this before this. I put these in a different order for various reasons. It says this in verse 4 of chapter 1. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. How does God rebuild a wall of that caliber? Well, I'll tell you how he, do it, how he does it. He doesn't appoint a committee. Committees are what people like. I've sat on several in my life. They are terribly boring and frustrating things on the whole. They want to get a lot done and usually end up achieving a lot less. Listen. When anything changes in a major way in this world, it's because one person has a vision and does it. That's the difference. And God chooses one man who's got a heart to be open to him and make the right response. And with just that one man, he changed the destiny of nations. 
One man, one woman, one person can make all the changes in this world that God needs. Is anyone sitting here this morning thinking, God, I'd like to be that person for my nature, for my neighborhood, and for my nation? Well, that's how God did it. And let me tell you the kind of person he chooses. It starts off by saying, Nehemiah asked questions of the guys that had returned from Jerusalem. Listen, if you want to be a person that changes things, start asking questions. And don't ask trivial questions. Ask meaningful questions. Ask probing questions. Ask deep and purposeful questions. How are you getting on with God? How is your life at the moment? Are you walking well with Christ? Are you walking free of sin or has sin got a grip on your life? Is there anything I can pray for for you? How are you doing? How do you need God to help you in your life? Do you need a miracle right now? These are the kind of questions that a person who changes things asks. And you know what? People want to be asked those questions. They're just waiting for someone with the bottle to come along. Sorry, with the courage, if your English isn't your first language. With the courage and the confidence to come along and say, how is it in your life? And that's the kind of guy Nehemiah was. And God used him. And it says that he prayed. He says that I prayed for some days. He is being modest. When you read it, it looks like it's two or three days between the beginning of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Now, if you read it again, you'll look. It says, in the month of Kislev, I ask questions. Now, Kislev is a month. The Hebrew months don't quite line up the same as ours. So they start sort of in the middle of our months, and they go to the middle of our months. So Kislev is November, December. It says then, he started to fast and pray and mourn and weep. And then it says, in the month of Nisan, the king gave him this incredible opportunity. Nisan is March, April. We're in Nisan right now, which is coming up to the end of it. That's five months. Now, we don't know when exactly he started off in the month of Kislev, asking those questions, and when exactly in the month of Nisan he was asked by the king what it is he wanted to do. But I'm going to assume it's about five months. So I've done a little bit of math here, evened out some days, and I reckon five months, more or less, in round terms, gives you 150 days. 150 days. 150 days to change your nature, your neighborhood, and your nation. You see, it looks like it was a small amount of time, but he was, during that time, praying and weeping and mourning and fasting before God. That is a lot of those things, over 150 days. And here's what happened to him. Now, you would normally think, over time, things get better. That's what people like to want to believe in our society. And maybe the feeling of desperation and pain at hearing about the state of Jerusalem, well, maybe he'd be really intense for a week. And then maybe after a month, it gets a little bit more, you know, reasonable. And after two or three months, he's happy to pray, but he's not feeling so bad. Actually, it got worse for him. Every time he prayed, he felt worse. Could you imagine if we advertised our prayer meetings like this? Come to the IHC prayer meeting and feel worse. Come again and you'll feel even worse than you did the last time. Come to church to feel more terrible than you did before. 
Somehow it's not a great advertisement, is it? But that's what happened to him. The burden, the sense of something has to change was so strong in him that every day he prayed and fasted and mourned and wept and wept. Every day he did those things, the burden grew stronger and stronger and deeper and deeper inside him. Until in the end, he couldn't stand it anymore. Now, you are not allowed to go to the king and be miserable in his presence. That's an insult to this wonderful, all-glorious, fantastic, all-powerful king who's employed you as a wine taster. I presume that's not just because the, the wine was cheap plonk, but because it was, somebody might have poisoned it. So Nehemiah is the first line of defense between the king and a, and a bottle of poison. You're not allowed to look sad when you give him the wine. You're not allowed to do that in the king's presence. So to come to the king and let your feelings show is a bad thing. And you read there, he says, he was very much afraid. Remember, the queen could not approach the king in those days on her own request. She had to wait for the king. You read it in the next book in the Bible in Esther. If the king didn't extend his scepter and you touched the end of it, and he, you know, if you didn't get his favor, you were dead meat. And he was doing something even more risky than that. He was allowing his feelings to show. But the Spirit of God had stirred him so much, he couldn't keep it in anymore. Now that happens when the Spirit of God moves on you. You read about it, Jeremiah talks about, uh, uh, it's like fire in his bones. And and one of Job's uh, counselors talks about, he's like, I'm full of unvented wine. It's like somebody's shaken up a bottle of champagne and the cork's ready to come out. That's how Nehemiah was. And on that day, he spilled over in front of the king. And why is your face looking so miserable? Because I've been to church for five months. (laughs) Doesn't seem to have done you much good. Actually, it's done me lots of good. I am really burdened with something. What is it you want to do now? Here's where the miracle really starts to happen. You see, I believe it was those five months, those 150 days of prayer and fasting and weeping and mourning that got him to that place of it all spilling over. During that time of praying and seeking God, God was doing something and changing the spiritual atmosphere around Nehemiah, around the king, around Jerusalem. So that when Nehemiah gets to the place of it all spilling out in front of the king, the king in that moment gives him favor. That's the work of God. That's the move of the Spirit. That was the moment that the rebuilding of the wall was birthed into the world, into reality. It came out of faith and out of the heart of God and out of the Spirit being stirred in Nehemiah and it started to become reality on that day. And it all happened because of that 150 days. It didn't just happen for nothing. It happened because of the place Nehemiah uh, found himself in before God And that's where the battle was really won in the spirit. Now, we know it took just 52 days to raise the wall. And everybody says, isn't that incredible? 52 days to build a wall. That's true. But there was three times longer than that in the hidden secret place before anybody touched any bricks or or blocks of stone. And that's where the breakthrough came. 
The third thing that Nehemiah did was he persisted. He persisted. It says this in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Nehemiah was working in less than ideal conditions. He was not working with pallets of new blocks and stones arriving from Jusant on the back of a lorry. It would have been nice, wouldn't it, if the site was all clear and they phoned up Jusant and they delivered lorry loads of these nice-looking stone, all on nice pallets with a forklift truck, put them down, they're wrapped in plastic, we'll just unwrap them one by one and we will build a wall out of them. Nice and easy. Well, it would have still been difficult. The enemy was still against them, and the circumstances were against them. They still had to work hard and guard themselves. That would have been tough enough as it was, but they didn't even have that. What they were going to use was the burned out, broken down rubble of what was there before. That's harder. I'll tell you how hard it is. I've actually done this in one of my many jobs in life. Um, I worked as a bricklayer's labourer. And I was working on a college in Oxford one day, and the company phoned up and said, send your labourer to this other site. So I got on my bicycle, and I rode up the road from Magdalen College in Oxford to Pembroke College, about a five-minute bike ride. And when I got there, I was with another labourer, and we were shown what we had to do. The wall around Pembroke College Gardens, where the, the master or the head of Pembroke College had his private garden, had partially fallen down. It was an old stone wall, and there was a pile of rubble on each side with a wall. It's like a... Kind of a, I don't know if it was dry stone, it, it, what? It was stuck together with something, but it wasn't very strong. And it just fallen. So this 12 foot high wall was now only about six foot high. And the, the privacy wasn't there in the garden, and there was all this damaged rubble everywhere. And when we got there, our foreman had driven down there a bit earlier, and he was a bricklayer, and he said, I've got to relay this stone exactly as for the old pattern. And he said, I can't work with it like that. So you and this other guy, you're going to have to go through all of that stone pull it out by hand and separate it into piles. I want stones of this size and stones of that size and any fine dust you can just put in a pile over there because we may not be able to use that. So for two days, me and this other guy, we work on this wall with our bare hands. Well, they weren't quite bare. I had a pair of leather gloves, but I wore them out on the first day. So I had to use my bare hands the second day. And for two days, the pair of us worked on this stone just sorting out the rubble. We made it into piles. We graded it all for our foreman so actually when he came to build it it took him less time to build the wall than we'd spent on sorting it all out now that's how it is when you work with rubble and the wall God wants to build is a wall of people's lives that are on fire for him and the way he does it is instead of bringing pallet loads of angels from heaven to say these are nice new Lives all together, sparkling, pretty-looking angels will make a wall out of them around the people of God. He uses rubble like us and like the people in this world. People whose lives have been burnt. People who've been disappointed and hurt. People who've been damaged. People who once were in a good place but now are in a bad place. Or people that may feel they've never been in a good place at all. 
Listen, there's two kinds of wall we're talking about today. There's the wall of our own lives, where the fire of the Holy Spirit comes onto us and makes us different to how we would otherwise have been and different to the way this world lives. But there's the wall of the people of God, and you and I are the blocks and the building material in that wall. And the wall's not complete yet. There's a whole lot of rubble outside of here this morning. Broken lives, burned, broken down. The wall isn't big enough. There are gaps in it. There are huge gaping holes in it. And the rubble's just lying there. And the challenge for every one of us is, can I see myself as a Nehemiah? Can I see myself working with this rubble? Because it's not easy to work with rubble. It really cuts your hands. I can tell you that personally. Why bother to build with it? I'll tell you why. That wall was established hundreds of years earlier in Pembroke College. And we wanted it to look as good, as classic, as classy, and as wonderful as it once looked. That's why we used the original material, even though it was more difficult to work with. Listen, you are difficult to work with. If you don't believe me, ask your cell leader or your spouse, or your child, or your parents. Right? People are difficult to work with. Perfect, wonderful, altogether people have some challenges maybe, but fallen people with issues in their lives who are broken down, who've been burned, well, they're a lot more difficult to work with. And the call of God on every person in this earth is, first of all, become part of the wall yourself. Let God radically change your life through his son, Jesus Christ. Through knowing Christ and being born again by the Spirit of God, God can put that fire, that passion in your life. But don't stop there. Don't be glad and say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm in the wall now. That's okay. But be like Nehemiah. Sift through the rubble. Find a stone that's willing to be put in the wall and place it in the wall and cement it in there and work it into the wall. That's why we have things like encounters and consolidation and training and discipleship. It's all part of building the stone into the wall and returning what was ruined to something amazing and wonderful, how it always should have been in the first place. That's the call. That's the challenge. It just takes one Nehemiah to be like that. That's why the vision we preach as a church is for every person to be like Nehemiah, to be a person who's willing to be built and willing to build with others who's willing to be someone who asks questions, who's willing to be someone who does something, who's willing to be who looks at the way the world is and says, something's got to change. My own life's got to change. My neighborhood's got to change. My nation's got to change. Something has to be done here. And if I have to mourn and fast and pray and weep and get serious with God about this, then I'll do that because this is too important. The lives of those people are too important. The progress of this nation is too important for me just to ignore it. Question is, do I want to be someone like Nehemiah? Do I want to be like that? Well, as I felt God direct me to this part of the Bible and so on, and I started studying it. First of all, let me read you this verse, and then I'll tell you what my response was. As I was studying this, I felt the Lord speak this other verse to me from Isaiah. It says this in Isaiah 58, 12. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. 
You will raise up the age-old foundations and you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. Would you like to be that? Somebody who repairs what's broken down. Somebody who makes streets. We call those cell meetings today. Small families of people who live inside the wall and treat each other differently and live according to God's ways. Who, who, as it were, make Eden all over again. Who reconstitute Jerusalem and what that stands for all over again. Do you know, I, I was telling my cell on Thursday night, I used to be very critical of that famous old British hymn. And did those feet in ancient times... We used to sing that in school assemblies. It tells you what kind of British-style school I went to. The last days of the failing, crumbling colonies and empire, I think. Walk upon England's mountain green. It goes on to say, And was Jerusalem builded here among those dark satanic mills? I had a friend whose dad was a mill owner over in Lancashire, he was not impressed with the dark satanic mills. We're trying to make good conditions for our workers, you know, none of this dark satanic stuff. But the sense is there, isn't it? We want to build the people of God, what the Bible sometimes refers to as Jerusalem. We want to rebuild those walls and that city, and that temple. We want to discover again what God has always intended for the human race, to live a great life without pain, without that hurt, without doing harm to one another, but taking care of one another and doing good to one another with great families and great finances and great lives and great health and great opportunities. We want to rebuild all this good that God would have rebuilt in us. And suddenly I saw in Blake's hymn there, maybe that's what he was really referring to. Not some God bless the British Empire kind of sentiment. But God, rebuild the wall. Rebuild that hope, that vision of a people that God can live amongst and be radically different in the world today. You will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. So anyway... As I was reading all of this, and I was looking at this 150 days, immediately I felt God nudge me and speak to me. Would you take 150 days to really get serious with God like Nehemiah did? I think, Lord, what does that mean? And then I, I said, well, Lord, what does that mean? How could I respond like Nehemiah did? How can I bring about change? Let me say something to you. I cannot promise you what the outcome will be if you do what I am started doing. I can promise you two things. I can promise you you'll be different. And if you fast and pray for 150 days, you'll be thinner. <laughs> but what God does at the end of all of that, that's between God and his purpose and plan for us as a people and his working in your life, but it will be something awesome. It will be a change in you, in your nature, in your neighborhood, in your nation. So I felt God's provocation to me was this. Could you do something like that? So what do I do, Lord? And then I felt God put into my heart, supposing I prayed some different kinds of prayer that you find in the Bible. A three-day fast and pray like Esther did for the favor of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to be on my life. A 10-day 
pray like Jeremiah did for an answer from God and a 10-day time of testing like Daniel and his friends did when they were tested to eat only cabbage and yet they came through as wiser and better than everybody else. Interesting enough, when they succeeded in that test, God made them 10 times wiser than all the other um, advisors in the country. It's interesting, he took the number they gave him and he gave it back to them as 10 times more. That's a good word for an offering, which we're going to take in a minute, by the way. We haven't forgotten. What you give God, he gives back to you. What you give him in addition, he gives back with multiplication. Now, there's a 21-day fast and pray in the Bible where Daniel partially fasts. Daniel has to work for, as the, as the it's his 21-day fast. So he, he gets rid of sweetened meat. I think somebody summarized it up for, for me the other night. Things that are sweet and things that are meat. He just exists on basic food. Mind you, he's practiced that earlier in his ministry, hasn't he, with the cabbage in Daniel chapter 1. And he seeks God for an answer. That prayer is for answer. And then there's a 40-day fast where Jesus is in the wilderness. Fasting distractions. That's what this one is about. You can fast some food as well. I'm gonna, again, things maybe that are unnecessary. And in that time, Jesus was seeking God for victory over the enemy. For a real sense of clarity of his mission and how he was going to do it. He was getting through with God and making sure he had total victory over the power of the enemy. Now, the curious thing is, if you add up all those days, they come to 74, which is almost exactly half of 150. And I felt what God was saying to me was, take 150 days, and within the 150 days, you can do a three-day fast, a 10-day fast, a 21-day fast, and a 40-day fast of different things at different times for different reasons. And then in the days in between, you can come up for air and recover and, you know, get some strength back and so on. By the way, Nehemiah did all this while he was at work. It says at the end of chapter 1, now I was cupbearer to the king. That five months he spent doing this, he was able to carry on and sustain himself in his ordinary job. So whatever kind of praying and weeping and mourning and fasting he did, he kept on faithfully with his job of work. So 74 days out of 150, I think if you finish on a high and have a one-day, 24-hour prayer, fast, and celebration, that'll make you 75 days. That's pretty, pretty good mathematics, really. 150 split half and half. So that's what I'm doing. I've already started my 150 days. I'm wondering if anybody here today wants to be in that same spirit of Nehemiah. Now listen, there is no requirement on anybody to do anything of this today. But if anybody wants to join me, you're welcome. I've got a little sheet of paper at the back here with a summary of what I've just said to you on those kind of prayer times. Nobody has to do this. This is about willingness. This is about someone who wants to be like Nehemiah in spirit. Who wants to be a person who will ask questions, will be serious about the answer, and wants to rebuild walls by working with ruined, burned stones and taking on that challenge and bringing those stones into the wall, bringing them to God and seeing people's lives set on fire by the power of the Holy Spirit and a love for Jesus Christ. Anybody wants to do that, 
you're welcome to join me. I don't want to stop you from doing it, but you understand today, I want to make this as open and as free as possible. It is your heart and your willing spirit. It's between you and the Lord, because I can't be around for 150 days to police you. By the way, on the other days in the 150 days, when you're not in one of those special prayer times, the commitment is to really work hard at your Bible reading and devotional life and prayer. To make sure you prioritize that before you do anything else in the day. I've given up reading my the news in the morning or anything else like that until I've got through with God in the word and in prayer. And on those other 75 days, that's the priority. Get through with God at the beginning of the day before anything else, before you think about anything else, talk about anything else, do anything else, go for anything else. It means getting up early, giving that time. But that's the challenge and that's the commitment. The result for Nehemiah was a simple question. What do you want? The favor of the king opened up to him. And I believe if any man or woman wants to be of the same spirit of Nehemiah, God will ask them the same question and open the same opportunity to build that wall. Amen. Why don't we stand for a moment? Dave, can I have those pieces of paper? We'll put them down the front here. If you do decide to go about this, do tell somebody. As I say, it's, it's essentially a commitment between you and the Lord. And there is more detail to this. I've only given you an outline. And if enough people do this, we can put on some things together. The sheets are down here for you at least to look at the summary. And do tell your cell leader, I'm going to go with this. Do talk to your cell leader about that. Let's just close our eyes for a moment, shall we? Now, this is your moment. And I'm going to ask for two or three responses. If you feel, first of all, your life has ended up like that rubble, burned, damaged, but you dearly love it to be picked up and rebuilt into something beautiful and something wonderful again, and you want to ask God to help you do that, he surely will, the Bible says. Anyone who asks him, he says yes to Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't matter how badly burned, how badly crushed, how badly messed up your lump of stone has become. God will clean you up and restore you and build you into his people by the power of his spirit and the power of Jesus' life inside of you. Does anybody want that today? going to invite you while our eyes are closed just put your hand up and say yeah I, I want my life restored like that it, it's got to rubble I need the rubble restored hands over here anybody else Father I pray now for every person who feels like they've become rubble pick them up now in the love of God by your spirit Lord now send them this message that they are loved that they're accepted, that Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. But they are accepted by you and by the Lord Jesus and by the Holy Spirit right now in this moment. And that, Lord, you take them back again. You draw them back. You forgive whatever's happened to them. 
has got them into that place and you build them back into your walk and you set their lives on fire again. God, I pray for each one now who's raised their hand. Touch their hearts now with an assurance and a reassurance from God that they're no longer rubble, but they're chosen and choice and quality material in your hands. In Jesus' name. Amen. And if anyone here wants to be of the spirit of Nehemiah, who wants to be that person who asks questions, builds the wall, and changes their own nature, their neighborhood, and their nation. If you want to be that kind of person, I want to pray for you as well. You can just raise your hand now as well, and we'll pray for you. Father, I thank you for all these Nehemiahs here today. Great builders, great constructors of the wall, men and women of faith, Men and women who don't see the rubble, but see the potential and the possibilities. God, I pray, put such a spirit in everyone here with their hand raised. That they could see themselves working for you, serving you with their own life cleaned up and and, and reconstituted and, and rebuilt and placed into that wall. And the ability and the calling and the joy and the confidence to speak to others and share with others and draw others in and say yes your life can be beautiful too God can do a miracle in you too God can place you into his wall God I pray raise up that spirit in us that spirit of Nehemiah that sees the possibilities that's willing to work with the rubble that's willing to build that's willing to pay the price that's willing to stand out and be different that's willing to pray and seek your face and willing to fast and weep and mourn on behalf of others as well as themselves and say, God, would you change my nature? Would you change my neighborhood? And would you change my nation through the power of Jesus' name, through the power of your word and through the power of your spirit at work in me? God, I pray that spirit, that spirit of conquest, that spirit of prayer, that spirit of difference, that spirit of being distinct, God would fall on us now. Lord, you just took one man, one person, and you changed history. You made a place that Jesus could come to through him. God, would you take our lives and through us make a place that Jesus can come to as well. Amen and amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Lord.